Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. In the first part of this month's show, Jacob interviews Canadian composer, vocalist, improviser and drag performer Gabriel Damu about their work. Well, in the second part, I talk with composer and vocalist Ryan and Cleave about his latest, just-released work. So do stay tuned. Uh, today we have uh, Gab Darmoon. Do you go by Gab or Gabrielle? Gabrielle. Gabrielle. Yeah. Um, and so you're a, a Montreal-based artist, uh, and we, uh, I don't like formally were connected, but I was introduced to you and your like work kind of through our mutual friend Sarah Albu, mm-hmm. uh, who's a vocalist, also like wonderfully in Montreal, um, and completely by happenstance, I played one of your pieces through uh, a group that I, I work with in Halifax, and so uh, happened to be in Montreal and figured I may as well track you down and do an actual in-person one. You're actually our first in-person <laughs> wow. podcast. What an honor. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge honor. <laughs> For me, I'm, it's so nice to uh, actually do one of these like face-to-face. It's yeah. so uh, funny to do them uh, over Zoom and then like make them a podcast. But um, uh, So welcome to the Classical Queer Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we... Uh, have been uh, listening to your your music, and we've been kind of uh, talking about um, uh, all the things that you do. And you're like an active performer, but you uh, have a background as a composer and uh, as a vocalist, and, and all sorts of different versions of performance. And usually, what we do uh, on the the podcast at least is just kind of start with a general give us your bio type thing as in like uh how did you like uh start in whatever your your art form is like how did you uh go through that if school is like an important thing for like how that developed like tell us about that uh and then we kind of go from there yeah well i i come from classical music western classical music not in an intensive kind of uh forced to practice every day kind of way more more in the middle class kind of let's 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 have the kids learn an instrument and and that was the cello so i started on the cello and i did my uh my cégep you know the mm-hmm. college in quebec in in cello but i always knew i was interested in the creative side of music so as soon as i could um i went more into composition but that doesn't exclude that before that was a institutional doorway into that I was still creating music doing like you know little things on the computer and writing songs and things like that so that's that part has always been um, present but in an official kind of way it started in in, uh, in university I guess uh, at my undergrad in Université Laval and I finished that, and then I went to the Conservatoire here in Montreal, and I did uh, instrumental composition there. And um, that kind of wraps up the training part of it, but I think it gets more interesting in how um, how I 
departed from that, I guess, or I mean, I still have a foot in the new music uh, community, but um, so I've worked for some years, you know, writing commissions and um, uh, yeah, different chamber music, soloist, orchestra kind of stuff. Um, uh, but um, the things that kind of led me to look at other ways of making music are, I guess, my bicultural identity. My dad is from Trinidad, so I'm, I have a background that I'm Indo-Caribbean mixed with French-Canadian, Québécois. And I always knew that, okay, I'm studying Western classical music, but always with that kind of background thought, like, this isn't the only way, this isn't the only way to create music in the world, you know? So um, that led me to want to create um, a research projects. So I went to India twice to study uh, South Asian, uh, South Indian Carnatic music. And I did that on the cello, voice, theory, uh, rhythm. Like, not enough to be a specialist, but enough to to have that really inform uh, my brain as a composer, my ear, the way I sing, the, my vocal techniques. So I went there in 2008 and 11. And like my graduation was 2006, seven ish So That's pretty after. fast after I was like, okay, don't get stuck. No, you have to keep it moving. You have, you have to keep learning. So I've always kind of had this kind of, um, yeah, this, this fire, you know, to, to not stay um, stale. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess after that, I did more composition, but kind of in a way that I would have described at that time as maybe intercultural or, or that kind of embraces parts of something that's related to identity in an in a education where it, I wouldn't say it was discouraged, but... Um, there's lots of hints, you know, with hindsight that made me see how objective music kind of approach where the work of art stands by itself and audience isn't that important and all those things. That was kind of in the, yeah, sort of insinuated and in what we give value to, um, which are the really white patriarchal ways <laughs> of, of making music. So, um so, yeah, and then um, I guess the next ways that I kind of bifurcated were, um, well, realizing that, yeah, okay, another culture, that, that's great, but um, it still didn't feel like mine necessarily because um, you hear this more and more from uh, my generation and younger how when you're half something and half something else, you know, you don't really have a sense of... Uh, culture uh, that's yours you know mm -hmm. so you're kind of always in in-betweens so I, I started playing with the concept of imaginary culture and I did a couple of pieces where it was more that kind of thing um, and I noticed that what I liked the most was doing it with voice mm. and then I noticed that I'm the best singer to do it <laughs> <laughs> for different reasons um, Mostly because I, my own voice isn't uh, trained, mm. but it's it's still you know I've used it all my life and in a creative way. So I had my own style, and uh, not that it's completely unique, but it just felt more authentic to uh, what I wanted to explore. And uh, fast forward a bit to integrating more of uh, queer arts to to this. Um, so. It, 
I guess I'm, I guess what qualifies my <laughs> evolution or whatever as an artist is always trying to be as authentic as I can to what what parts of me exist and how they can be um, present in my work so that it's not this separate thing and the things that drive me both come from within like um, but they also come from uh, what communities I engage and who shows up to events and I'd say that going to concerts where I feel like the audience is just the one that you expect all the time um, I'm 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 less and less man, satisfied by that I'm, I'm getting almost impatient also <laughs> mm. about it I think the pandemic really uh, made me st- yeah I mm. guess it's everything stopped and then you can really look at things and then everything else happened in that time you know black lives matter social justice mm-hmm. uh, lots of indigenous issues in Canada and you're and you see how cultural institutions take a stand or not in that world and mm-hmm. it's just like I think it's easier to be an individual in those moments and then there's choices we can make um, and let's see if institutions follow but for the most part it's 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 complicated <laughs> it is <laughs> but you're I think that the forced reckoning that we had the forced stop the forced because uh, we couldn't do anything but sit and stew and reevaluate and like understand what it was we were all doing and what we would like to do and how we can do it and what that you know coming out on the other side of the pandemic uh, was never clear and so we had to have that kind of re-understanding of what you know what our audience is what we are performing why are we performing this how are we performing all of those things um and so i think it's it's fascinating to hear uh who did and didn't have that conversation with themselves yeah. and like some of these institutions have not had that conversation with themselves and have just completely plowed forward through the pandemic and are coming out on the quote-unquote other side sort of um really with zero difference in what they're trying to to put on or, or commission or program or, or pay for. And it's, uh, it's fascinating to then talk to people who that just completely either accelerated, they were already having that conversation in their own head or something, um, and how it's changed uh, their outlook on, on things. Yeah, I think we're still at the point where it's the outlook. And uh, well, I mean, I think lots of, if you were already active in that before, then it gives you that uh, just a bit more ammunition, I guess, mm-hmm. to keep going and keep. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm really curious of what's gonna be born from this worldwide um, game-changing moment in history. I think mm-hmm. you know. So, um, so I guess I'm not super. Um, I'm a bit cynical, honestly, about um, many cultural institutions and um but i'm also i know that there's some that are are trying so that's what keeps me uh at some point encouraged yeah because i'm not i mean i'm not perfect either right it's not that like i'm above all this and then i'm like no i can't work with you because of this but so i'm interested in the people that are yeah that have given it some thought but i'm 
I, I like people that have been doing it before have bonus points for mm-hmm. sure because it's not about like oh, all of a sudden this is trendy you know it's uh, it's more complicated than that um, yeah and so when you were uh, prior prior to all this because again you've been, you've been thinking about a lot of this for a long time and thinking about uh, like identity and how that kind of works into your own work and your own performance. Like, do you do you remember like a moment where either either like bicultural identity or gender identity became a focal point of what you were thinking, or did it slowly seep in and kind of manifest? I think it was it was there, and then it kind of got hijacked during my studies. I think, and then it came back a little bit because I think I think I always saw it, and there's a. Uh, a wackiness and a, a weirdoness to me that was there when I was 16, 17, 18, 19. Um, and uh, it was in my work. Mm. <laughs> or, well, I don't have work is a good <laughs> word for it. But it was in what my you were doing work. at yeah, the yeah. time. Yeah. It, was, it, it translated, you know. I'd go up to maybe 21 or so. And then it, there wasn't like a definite cut, like, oh, you're in school now, be serious. But it did definitely change. I think there was mm. a, a fair amount of trying to play the rules of the game that I was trying to understand and then mm-hmm. actually playing that game professionally and then at some point being like, ah, but it's interesting with new music because unique voices are valued. Like mm-hmm. people that have, like, so I think that there was an interest in, in say I was doing a piece, uh, oh, and it's based on this, this concept that I, I, that's inspired by my travels and my research to India and like like it's not that they were like no we don't want that like I think mm-hmm. there was a genuine interest because we're in, interested in innovation we're interested in, in newness and style and things that are fresh um, but we're not that interested in new ways of doing things and in mm-hmm. ways of of um, finding who might do those things and having them be part of this world we're, we're in you know like there's tons of there's tons of uh even if you take like uh indie music or electronic music or like there's there's innovative weirdo stuff too that maybe is more new music than some of the stuff that's programmed <laughs> like oftentimes you know so yeah. so i think that our definitions are a bit narrow and yeah, now I see pla- I see some places that are really curating other stuff, and they're they're kind of more also interdisciplinary in a way. Because I think music has music is really I find it very weird um, how just how linked we are with Western classical music still like mm-hmm. heavily like way more than like I don't think theater is like. I mean, yeah, you learn Shakespeare, but you're not obsessed with it the way that we are with other things. Same for dance. Like, not every new choreographer will try to find a way to describe why it fits in with ballet. Like, it's it's mm-hmm. moved on, you know? So I think music is, for many reasons, uh, I think one of the most important ones is our obsession with skill and virtuosity and what it takes to get to that level. It It's some form of yeah of kind of 
covert gatekeeping anyway. <laughs> I don't even think it's that covert. I think it's yeah. like, <laughs> unfortunately very uh, present in vocal gatekeeping. Uh, <laughs> I, but I, you know, I, I, sometimes these interviews end up like, we're like preaching to the choir. Like I'm here, like I get it. I'm like doing the, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to like convince me of any of these things, but it's, but it's interesting always talking to people. Cause I think sometimes we have these ideas that this is like a, like a siloed idea and there's like such a small group of us who have this uh outlook on music but it's not it's like a very uh common thing to understand that classical music is antiquated and and kept and uh, conservative and really bizarrely focused on uh an idiom that existed 250 and then 500 years ago like no other art genre does that in the same way and you're right, there's there's such a funny thing to talk about, like new music, and as you were talking about, there's so much other music that exists outside the system that probably should be called what we're calling new music. I always think of like Aphex Twin. You cannot tell me that Aphex Twin is not the most like contemporary ensemble. <laughs> it's it's brilliantly written and incredibly complex, but no concert hall would bring them in, but they should, this is the point. Like <laughs> I guess one of the things, like, because we could think, like, okay, what are the definitions then of, or the the new definitions? But I think one of the things that we have to, not have to, but I feel, my hunch is that there's something about this music that's non-commercial, you know, that's not linked to, that's a good part of new music, so Mm. great if we can explore and research, and it's not because it's going to appeal to uh, a mass or whatever, and, and like I, I think there's more audience out there than we assume, and mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I think that that's what that's the deal breaker for the scenes. So is like why should we? Why? Well, <laughs> there's two sides of seeing it. Why? Why should? Um, why should we give an opportunity to Apex Twin? And mm. two, why would Apex Twin give a shit about well, coming into, you know, it's yeah. this, this same kind of thing, right? So, <laughs> I'm just, it, it, like, essentially, I'm just, re- I'm interested in, in things that feel, uh, that excite me, and that, uh, and one of the things that excites me is seeing um, artistic voices that, what they say or think or represent, you know, socially or politically or in terms of identity, that in the actual artwork, it just works. It's just like a, a fit. That's when I get really excited. It's like, oh, yes, this is, of course you do that and you're doing it so well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what, so, but that can belong to, it could be, uh, you know, commercial, it could be not, it could be pop music, it could be, uh, in a museum, it could be uh, at a drag cabaret. It could be. It's, it could be so many things. Mm-hmm. Funny you bring up drag. When in it's how recent is your uh, drag project in your like presentation and work? Um, I started three years ago. Yeah, three years ago, I guess. But I think I I started it really um, uh, on the side, and, and I wasn't telling many people. Mm-hmm. It was kind of this thing that. So my drag persona, uh, Bijuria, is started as I'd say uh, a female presenting character that was uh, South Asian. You know, that was playing with South Asian re- cultural references, such as Bollywood mm-hmm. or 
uh, or brand icons like MIA or things like that. So I wanted to explore that, and um, I think that um, my my bigger kind of project before that was Anthropologie Imaginaire, which was my, one of my imaginary culture kind of projects where I was. Uh, it's a solo performer show that I've toured, and it's like my 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 my. Uh, prideful creation of you know, the thing that I'm most proud of to this date kind of project that was in 2014 and I performed it up to the pandemic but mm. um, I guess after doing that I was like hmm I work with imagine imaginary stuff a lot you know what's maybe I should maybe I want to touch on the things about me that I I want to grow from exploring and that intersection of my brownness and my queerness was is a there's a kind of a yeah there's knots in there <laughs> there's 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 stuff to untangle so i wanted to create this persona to engage with the queer brown community first mm -hmm. so th that's why i was like no if i'm starting an instagram page i'm not gonna have a base of people that follow me because mm. they're my friends i wasn't afraid that they wouldn't understand or it, it wasn't about that like but it, it wasn't for them yeah I, I really was adamant that this was like let me connect with people for for the right reasons and those people for long didn't know or i didn't i wasn't super uh, i wasn't explaining what i do outside of drag you know so it was right so i i, I I built my networks. I don't. I don't want to say my following because it feels very two-sided. You know, mm -hmm. I've met so many other drag artists that that um, explore um, their identity or arts. And all. I have my favorite kind of styles and all of that. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, so I've done that for three years. But only in the only just a bit after the first lockdown, I did my my sort of uh, official. <laughs> coming out mm -hmm. as a drag performer um, like just posting a picture and explaining I've been doing this um, and then since well also because I knew I was I, I was work I'm working towards a, a stage show that is taking drag but you know doing a the kind same kind of show I would have done with Anthropologie Imaginale you know like a theater show one performer thing mm -hmm. but I, that that it would be in and around drag. That's premiering like in February, mm. but it would have premiered during the pandemic. So, right. so, uh, so that's what uh, led me to, <laughs> to share it. Because <laughs> I'm also, the, the thing is that that was a phase, you know, wanting to keep it very separate. Right. But it's not it's not something that's sustainable. Um, I don't regret doing it that way. It was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and what was the response? I mean, if 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 it was a community of people who, I mean, you obviously have a lot of connection to, but wasn't from your kind of like day to day life as like a performer outside of that. I'm curious what people's uh, initial response was if they didn't know you aside from that. I guess there's a. I was engaging other brown queer people like so the first people I started following there or you know just in a really organic kind of like I see you do you see me <laughs> you know, kind of were were other drag artists and then from there you just it just built up you know from from uh so I guess that the people that saw it um it was in a 
yeah, this kind of supportive thing that you're like, okay, I see what you're doing. And I wasn't great, you know, at first, you know, mm-hmm. but I was, uh, but there's still stuff that, that shines through the, the skills that are basic at first in drag, you know, because I've performed for a long time. So even if yeah, my, the bones are still there for yeah, performance, if yeah. my lash is wonky, like I still have a way of still a good <laughs> lip syncing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and then so yeah. this was one angle, but the other one was the local drag in Montreal. So I, I guess I, after five, five months or so, I debuted as as a stage director person at uh, a place called, uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but Alterna Drag, and I met tons of local performers there. Mm. And I, I not, and the, my first bride in August here in Montreal, I, I was on a South Asian queer float. Uh, <laughs> I did, um, like I did so much, like for, a, and there was a, the huge illusion show. Um, mm. There was a, this Uma God and Selma God were great, like just the, just so amazing <laughs> uh, in Montreal because they are kind of the, the, the queerdos of the drag scene. So they do the, the, the stuff in the village that's more conventional drag, but mm. they, they totally understand that there's more to it than that. So mm. they'll find and support and, 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 um, uh, showcase all these other artists, you know, and, mm. and so when they saw I existed, they were like, yeah, a brown weirdo. <laughs> That's good. Like, we, we want that. So they did a show outside and we, I was part of this out, out of village drag number. And so, so it kind of went pretty fast with drag. It's like the more you try to get involved, uh, it works. And right now I'm a bit lay, laying low a little bit because I want to, I'm writing songs for my mm-hmm. character and I'm working on the show. Mm-hmm. So I'm, and I, I also, I have a mustache right now and I'm kind of <laughs> enjoying it. So I haven't gotten to makeup for a while. <laughs> um, yeah. But all that, I mean, I, I, I forgot the point I wanted to make, which was that the secret was not sustainable and so yeah. was staying as one idea of a character. So, mm-hmm. Bidria is still this kind of wacky Bollywood princess, <laughs> funny, quirky person. Mm-hmm. But I'm enjoying playing with makeup and trying other, you know, other skin tones that, like, not not in the sense of appropriate <laughs> skin tones, but in the yeah. term of like makeup that has like a, a blue base or a pink base or a, or just playing with more, um, yeah, characters and different styles. And the other step that, that was interesting is the first project I did um, as a drag musician, composer, was that I did four portraits of vocal improvisation and makeup. So that, was, uh, that opened up a whole new uh, door for me, of mm-hmm. getting into makeup, doing the stuff I did before, but not in a, but like, they, they kind of informed each other a lot too, yeah. And the uh, so I've watched one of the the because there's a video that you yeah. sent me, and so it uh, I have like a long history with like uh, vocal uh, weirdness in all senses, um, and it's usually I mean from from my experience part of people who have like many many years of like vocal world and then they get through all of their like stresses and their other things and they just want to do other things and so this version of, of uh, vocalizing kind of 
people find it. And so I'm curious as like a cellist by training in the sense of like what you, like, what you started with and whatever. Um, how did you like come to voice as your method of like sound production, at least at right now and like your version of it? Like how did that come about? Yeah, there's different little chapters that are kind of like islands, you know, in the yeah. <laughs> in the situation. So um, I do remember. Well, I we had a band when I was in university, and Elizabeth Lima and myself were in there. Liz is also like Liz, Sarah, and I were like les poulettes, oh, okay, we're like okay, okay. BFFs, you know. So, so Liz and I go way back to like. Uh, we were 15 when we met and then we did the Cégep thing at the right. university. And we were pretty, uh, in our daily life, like, <laughs> just doing weird, like imitating whatever sound of <laughs> what car bird is around. And yeah. so it's always been there. But in our band, we, we did songs, but we also, we worked with poets at some point and they, they were kind of wanting us to do improvisation in a sound poetry kind of way. So now I can make the links between like, okay, in poetry, there's some people that have worked on on weird voice coming from the stream of like uh, poetry, sounds poetry, uh, all, all of that kind of right, history. Right, that lineage, yeah. Uh, I didn't really, uh, you know, I, it's just now that I know that. And then I guess I, at the Conservatoire, there was an improv class uh, with René Lucier. Mm -hmm. And I remember wanting to not do it on the cello and reconnect with voice um, the way that I had been doing in, in that group. And um, I, I might have done imp vocal improv here and there at gigs. Uh, it's mm -hmm. kind of blurry, but yeah, so I don't know. I think I just always really enjoyed the immediacy of expression and the... Yeah, there was just something that, like, the reason I didn't like cello, well, I, it's not that I didn't like it, but I didn't want to keep exploring it as an improviser, was that I just felt I was doing the same things a lot. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with voice, there's always a way, even if it might sound the same <laughs> to someone yeah. someone else, like, to me, it's it just always feels true and fresh to the moment um, in a completely different way than with an instrument. And I think that's, I mean, maybe, again, it's, it's like maybe something that musicians, it's like a, we take it for granted and it's a given, but people who are not musicians, like I, as a clarinetist, always have like something in between me and the audience or me and the music or me and the, there's like, a, a, um, whether or not I like the clarinet, there's something in between myself and voice is such a personal, immediate, uh, visceral thing, like, and you know, maybe musicians are like, duh, yeah, that's like what we understand as voice. But it's very true. And I think sometimes we forget that, that if we're trying to have that uh, connection very deeply, like voice is the obvious personal thing, like that makes perfect sense. And to explore that is obviously a much easier, better, deeper, more complex way to explore all of these different ideas. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so what uh, what are you working on next? You're doing the stage show version. Uh, you're developing that. You're writing some songs. Yeah. What else? <laughs> um, what else? Well, I'm, I'm doing a PhD. So mm -hmm. um, those are the two 
heavy things that I'm, I'm doing. But um, otherwise, uh, we have a, a vocal ensemble called okay. PHTH. Um, and uh, we have something coming up, the collaboration with an artist called Beth Frey. And um, it's this... Uh, uh, it's hard to explain without like a visual kind of <laughs> support, but she works a lot with uh, watercolors and apps and facial recognition apps. Mm-hmm. So, so we, the singers of the ensemble, were kind of styled in weird kind of costumes that fit her world, and had green screen parts also to mm-hmm. our costume that allowed transparency with the backgrounds and face swap things that the faces that she painted were kind of honest so that as we vocalized the weird mouth goes open and also it's pretty it's pretty awesome Uh, the the result um, so we're presenting the first round of uh, we did 12 little micro videos of 12 different characters so six singers times two Mm -hmm. and we're presenting that at Perte de Signal on December 2nd Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, yeah so that's that ensemble has kept us busy also a little bit and now we're maybe gonna see what's in the future and otherwise, um, yeah, I think uh, I don't know. I just I just feel like I want to do. I want to keep surprising myself all the time, and I don't know. That's something that sometimes people don't understand or relate to. Um, I can't have it any other way. Honestly, it's like um, I was telling you earlier that you know maybe I. If I never had a commission again, like I wouldn't miss it. I I just know that I'd find some some outlet, you know. For and and mm-hmm. it, and I prefer it to be uh, within my own control, I guess, than than always uh, linked to these outside circumstances. And when we're thinking about these discussions about who do we choose to collaborate with now in the in the complex world where. Um, it's hard to be neutral or apolitical, I think. Um, I guess I'm interested in still following my individual voice, but in, um, in a community-building way mm-hmm. of finding, um, finding ways. So I guess my stage show, my drag show, I'm, I'm not sure who's going to show up for it, you know, like I just... But part of me wants it to... Part of me wants to not advertise it in the hope that <laughs> through the other channels of the theater, mm-hmm. people see it and, and come, you know, because I feel like, I feel like it's, um, when I work a lot with such specific things sometimes, you know, weird voice and brownness and <laughs> drag and queerness. And, so it's not that there's no place for that, but it's, it's not meant to be universal. It's not meant to be um, everyone's cup of tea. Mm. But finding the person that will go like, I'm so into this, you know, is hard. It's really hard. But it happens just enough to keep you hopeful, you know. It is hard. There's a, a I don't know how well you know, like uh, more mainstream, like classical music theater. Uh, title of show uh, there's a song uh, I would rather be nine people's uh, most favorite thing 
than uh, a thousand persons like meh and it's yeah. it's like a tongue-in-cheek song but i could not possibly agree more if there are nine people who uh come to something i do and it is their be all and end all and they connect so deeply to it yeah I don't give a shit about the other thousand yeah, people. Yeah. I would much rather connect with those nine people. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, in that, again, the models that we like have to try and not work within, but unfortunately work within, uh, that's not how concert sales work and ticket sales <laughs> no. often. And like, if you tell that to an orchestra, they, they cry. And, yeah. Um, but it's true. I would much rather that as much as the model isn't uh, what is expected uh, you know, I love the idea of advertising not in traditional concert places and just yeah. seeing who comes. Yeah, it's just, it's it's risky and it's, I don't know, that's why social media is interesting. And I think we, I mean, it's, it's very problematic. I, I'm not going to glorify social media right now because mm. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to go on record <laughs> saying that because it is one bizarre yeah. uh, world. But I've been thinking about how easily um, organizations with funding and grants dismiss social media mm. and have nobody at their shows. Well, nobody is relative, but like it's just this thing where like, of course we're going to use social media if if we don't like. That's how most people find an audience, mm -hmm. um, and there's a bit of a. How do you say, like, I don't want to snobby, almost, attitude towards um, hashtags or something like yeah. that. And uh, I get it. I, I completely understand, but it has to, it's like not everybody has um, some grant and operational budget that, and, and I've found that many organizations have money to hire even pr promotion and social media person, people. And the people they hire don't even know how it works. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just this like very odd thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't know. So all that to say that um, um, the people that have gone Pigeria or Gab, well, more it's more the drag person that gets this type of, of reaction. Like, this is, this is so great. Like, I... Uh, I love what you're doing. I love your spin on it because there's tons of artists that that, that do brown drag, but mm -hmm. I think like there's a, a smaller proportion that do it with a kind of artsy weirdo kind of vibe. I'd right, say. right, right, right. Um, I, I can think of a few for sure, but um, I think that the like that's I try to do the drag I would have liked to see you know, <laughs> growing yeah. up, and, but it's it's rare, you know, that that like I'm not uh, and I'm I, and I'm not seeking to be. Uh, a favorite in a kind of narcissistic way, you know, mm -hmm. well, a little bit probably. <laughs> but, a yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we're fucking performers. Right? Yeah, you're but, on stage, so yeah. yeah. But it's like, it's just this. Yeah, I think we want to inspire and feel that things are resonate and are received with people that understand them. That's why I love putting really specific references and stuff I do mm. so that, you know, it's happened to me that actually in new music shows, at some point, I have a clear memory of a video projection and there, there were tons of images in it. And I recognized the poster for uh, a Bollywood movie like from the 90s, like a cult movie. And I was like, what? Oh my God. And I felt so special. You know, I felt yeah. as an audience member, I felt like 
you know, so that's the kind of excitement I, I want. So doing the, this show, I'm really thinking about like, okay, who, who gets what? But also, it's okay to not get things if you know that you're not getting something. You know, I think that right. the attitude of, of pretending that you're, you're, uh, you know everything about what you're going to go see or that you kind of superficially... You know, even like a classical musician going to the music of a concert of, say, uh, Indian music, and they'll be like, ah, the rhythms and the mm. melody, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, but like, still, you don't get it. Mm -hmm. You do not get it. Like, I, I'm not saying I do. I get it a bit more, but the, there's a, a readiness in, in pretending we understand. And the, the example I just gave was. Uh, a glowing review, you know, but mm. sometimes it's negative. Mm. Sometimes it's you're going to dismiss the thing. You're just going to say like, "Where's the harmony?" Or right. this is very limited music. It's so repetitive. It's so long Indian music. Oh, yeah. So that's another <laughs> another way. But you're not getting any of the context or of mm -hmm. the raga or of the playfulness between the music. You you don't you don't you know. So it's the same with contemporary practices, because basically you have a whole individual kind of thing that is is trying to negotiate how much people get, <laughs> and how much of it is special for that one person over there that's going to mm -hmm. be like, ah, that, that, that reference, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... But, but you're right, it, when it happens, as you're not an audience member, it's groundbreaking. It like wrecks your understanding of everything when you're sitting there and something happens so specific and so niche that you care so deeply about. But it does. It changes the way you you interact from that point forward. It's it's a lovely experience to have, be able to have. And so, you know, it's uh, it's it's a nice nice is the worst word but it's it's a nice thing as a performer to try and do that for other people to, to like have that be part of your practice that that's something that you have experienced that I've experienced in my ways that you are trying to bring to your audience that's a that's a good thing I don't think anybody can argue with that no one is but like I don't <laughs> think anybody can argue with it but yeah but I think but I, I, I don't think maybe that maybe it's an easier way to go from the other side I don't think that's how many institutions think. I don't think they're trying to present something that speaks to anybody at all in many ways. I mean, how who is Beethoven speaking to? Like who like what audience is that that is getting something personal and niche out of listening to Beethoven 9 again? It doesn't exist. There is no one. Everybody's dead. It's mm. not a thing. And so we can stop doing that. We can stop trying to connect with people that way. My view. Yeah, or I mean, it's so complex, right? But I feel like it can happen. It's just, I just like for me, it comes down to resources a little bit, and it's this, it's this thing where it's beautiful to to keep things alive uh, and to. Uh, maintain <laughs> or to um what's the word i'm looking for like say in a museum you're like yeah you're like you're archiving archiving it. yeah because it's um, that's the thing though like i say all these things but like listen to bach and like i'm flipped 180 and I'm just like oh my god this is so good you know so <laughs> so it's not as simple as being like oh new music is so 
you know, like weighed down by this. But I, I do think that um, if there's commissions, like I think the perfect example is orchestra commissions. Mm. They're most often tied to some sort of how can we complement this mm-hmm. thing on the program? Okay, your your piece is a resonance on Beethoven, or mm. your piece is, you know, you're gonna do a variation on this thing. True story, you know, and it's it's cool. It gives a, com- a composer or, or a few composers the opportunity to work with an orchestra, and for some that's a dream come true. But like, can we trust that there are musicians that have something to say <laughs> and that they can do it without without it latching on to those structures mm-hmm. but I don't know it's yeah and and I think that there, we've talked about how scale is important but I think we're not trusting young young musicians enough young young composers the way that um we would um, visual artists, yeah. mm. um, mm-hmm. or or filmmakers, or like, like the, you think of so many like first uh, first work of art put in the world, things that are super powerful that young people have done, mm-hmm. or recording artists, like like many are like twenty something, <laughs> yeah. And um, and we trust them to do that. Yeah. Well, they do it. And they do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 I mean, the record company or whatever presented that they trusted them. But I think it's it's this thing where composers it takes so long, and sometimes I feel like, wow, I worked so so long to be established, mm-hmm. and I'm not even happy of the scene I'm established. <laughs> and you know, and you're mm-hmm. like, what's what did I do? Could I have done? Yeah, no, honestly, like, cause, cause I don't know that what I, that all the things we're talking about now, the, like, it's not so much that people don't understand it. Some, some are opposed to it. Some will mm-hmm. deny it, you know? So, uh, I, I'm at a point where I don't, I don't know that I care about, um, the perks of, uh, prestige or something like that or mm. recognition that comes from <laughs> mm-hmm. from um, that world um, having gone through it you know I don't think like or even awards or things like that like if you look at my my bio or my CV I seem legit you know mm. <laughs> but, but then if you ask me personally is like what were your greatest moments of joy working as an artist and it doesn't necessarily reflect mm-hmm. like those are two timelines and two different situations completely you know so mm-hmm. it's it's weird <laughs> and maybe that's a good way to, to to cap it off because I think that's a good summation of, of uh, how you exist as a performer but we're going to listen to a few pieces um uh, kind of after this portion and uh, I hope people as they listen take in everything that you were just talking about and uh, see it through through that lens but um, thank you very very much for spending some time with me today thank you
what a fascinating interview with Gabrielle that was. Now, I recently had the pleasure to talk to Rylan Gleave, who we interviewed on the programme a few months ago. He has a new composition out called After a Dream, which I think is pretty unique. So before playing the interview, I thought we should first listen to the piece of music.
After Dream came about, um, because I found a recording of me singing Apres en Rêve, um, which is this song by Gabrielle Faure, um, and the English translation, sorry, translation of uh, Apres en Rêve is After a Dream. Um, and I was thinking a lot about um, how identity is tied to voice, and particularly like gendered perceptions of voice, and how even though that's me singing that French song, um, it very much doesn't sound like me singing that French song now. But there are still similarities um, because it is my voice and it might have changed in, in ways like uh, like pitch and kind of timbre and stuff. Um, but it's still very much Rylan singing that. And I found that was really interesting. Um, and obviously I can't sing that sort of at its, at its original pitch anymore, but I could sing it an octave down and I could transpose it. And there are other ways that I could work with that material to make it a song that I would feel comfortable singing again. Um, so yeah, playing with this idea of voice, former voice, current voice, um, which which side of yourself you're presenting to an audience, I think. The After Dream, the, the structure of the piece of music very much ha- is in different parts. There's a part which is kind of uh, the dream part, and then there's the sort of the awakening part. And you've kind of referred this to your old self and new self. So would you like t- to talk a little bit about the structure of how you did that? Yeah, um, so the piece itself, it's comprised mainly of excerpts from this old recording. Um, so that piano introduction is the piano from the version of, of old me singing it, but it's been edited, looped, processed. And then this kind of, uh, the new live vocal material, the new me, uh, introduces the piece. So I used kind of like, um, the original piano that's been edited, made more hazy, dreamlike, and the new me to kind of open this world out. Uh, and as I've inhabited it for a while, I bring the old me back into it. Um, so there's these kind of three elements that all end up linking together. But um, I thought it was important to bring the old me in second, um, as it, it is something that I that I think it was important for me to look at it in a non-linear way, because um, my own voice journey wasn't particularly linear. Like uh, it cracks and it splutters around to start with, and you think it's going down in a very 
uh, diagonal slant, and then oh no, actually you've lost that bit of range that you had yesterday. Um, there's a there's a fair amount of uh, you think you're making progress, and then you kind of you're not, and yeah, it is a little bit all over the place, but it, it kind of does move in in the one direction. Um, so it felt important to reference that kind of scattered aspect of it. I mean, one of the things you you say this idea of it being, you know, your voice has changed non-linearly, and and I. I kind of, I kind of think we all feel a bit that about all our transitions, whether it's the voice or your body or your mind or whatever part of it. Um, so this is kind of a bit of an allegory or something to a, to a bigger transition, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's it's weird trying to look back on uh, different different versions of me that I've presented myself as uh, in my, in my career and even sort of before I started doing music as a career, like as a child. Um, and I, I know what parts of myself I think I've presented, but it's always about how other people view those aspects as well. Um, and I, I find that, yeah, really interesting and often very difficult to understand. Uh, so I guess there is, there is something in there about, um, like presenting those, those two voices in this very dreamlike way and going, well, it could mean any of these things. Like without the kind of context for this piece, like would somebody pick up that it is necessarily the same singer? Would it be, um, would they almost imagine that this kind of second voice was the original voice? Would they imagine that was the kind of second half of it? Like I think it's nice to play with the characters and go, well, yes, this, I know this is the same person, but like what do, what does a different audience member pick up when they listen to it? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because the kind of backstory is important here, I think, because mm. I think if you were to listen to it without any knowledge about, about you or the singer, you, you would certainly believe they were two different singers. I, I mean, on, on the first, on the first cut through it, you would. Maybe later on, as you got to know the piece, you might see, okay, that maybe there, somebody with a very educated ear could, could determine there was some similarity. But I think to start with, I think you would actually not see that. And it's, it's kind of interesting, but ha- how external people see it and maybe how you see it, the difference between the two, which you've already sort of alluded to a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I ended up playing it to um, a guy that I, I know, just a, a friend, and he was halfway through and he was like, who's this woman singing this bit? Like, why have you chosen this voice? And I was like, oh. <laughs> it's actually me. And then with the context, he was like, oh, like, that's really interesting that, like, it's such a specific situation that, like, and I, I feel very, like, uh, thankful that I recorded so much varying material kind of at that age. Um, cause now I can, I can use it in these ways, but like, um, yeah, very lucky that, like, I just happened to have recorded a couple of those songs to have that material to work with now. It's kind of says something about keeping track of your past life a little bit. There's something deeper, meaningful in there about that, I think, somewhere. But, but, but I mean, actually going back and listening to your old voice, I mean, what, what, what do you actually feel about that? Because, you know, I, I could, it could be anything between void traumatic or it could be quite positive. I mean, how, how did you feel when you first heard it? What was your sort of gut, gut initial feeling? Yeah, so I'd not, um, I was, I know I'd been chatting to you about it, but I, uh, I hadn't listened to that recording back for a while. Um, I was trying to make more space on my laptop and I came across it in like the, the depths of my, one of some folder somewhere. And I listened through with my kind of older ears. Um, and I really, I didn't really feel that much listening to it. And previously when I've gone back earlier in transition and listened to my kind of very high voice, it's been quite painful. Um, but I, yeah, revisited that and went, oh, like I, I feel like I can treat my younger self with a bit more kindness now. There's something about maybe that distance that I can go, you know, you really, 
thought that you were dreadful. You thought you were a dreadful singer at the time. Um, and, you know, listening back, yes, you're a little bit flat there and you kind of breathed in the wrong place. But, you know, you, you, you what, 14, 15, you're really giving it your all. You know, you're trying really hard <laughs> um, and you've got some potential. So I guess, yeah, there's, there's an element of um, kind of self-care within that that I can look back at that teenage version of me and go, oh, you know, you really are trying. You've not got everything yet, but you are <laughs> you're doing your best. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I think you never get everything. So it's kind it's of kind true. of one of those things. You're always <laughs> looking back and thinking, "Hey, I I could do better here" or something. But I, but I was also thinking specifically from a from a transition point of view. I know when I look back at old photographs of myself, if at a certain distance back, I can kind of look at them and I'm dissociated from them. I guess mm. would be the right word. I can look at them and say, "Okay, that was me in the past." But a certain distance, they're too close and I can't dissociate from them. And I wonder if that was kind of true with his voice. You've got it far enough away from it that you you no longer um, associate with it in such a close way, maybe. Does that kind of make sense? That makes a ton of sense. I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, it's almost like that non-linear aspect of voice transition. Like, I think it's got to be... There is, I'm sure, a cutoff point and like somewhere around that point, um, it is far enough away. And I think when I've previously gone back and listened to this, it hasn't been far enough away. Um, but yeah, like I can kind of, I'm far away from it enough now that I can look at it and go, oh, I can see the positives from this bit. It's not as raw. Um, it's not as like physically, oh, that's me. Oh, that's the sound of, oh no. Like it's very much, oh, you are from me in the past and it's, it's okay to treat you with this, with this level of kindness. Cause, um, I guess, yeah, that voice just doesn't feel relevant in the same way anymore. So, so you've got some more work coming out like this, then you're going to have a, a few more pieces, go back to the old stuff and, and pull out some, some new tracks for us. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I don't know if you know the opera, The Marriage of Figaro, um, but there's a, <laughs> there's a great, uh, well, I say great. There's an aria in that, um, called Voice Sapete, which is sung by Carabino, uh, which is a trouser role. And I played Carabino as a, a young mezzo soprano a very long time ago. Um, and the kind of the layers of performative gender in that were insane because a trouser role, obviously you have a young woman playing a man, but then the young performer, then dresses up as another gender. So I've got me pretend like a man pretending to be a woman, pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman. And I just, I really could not get on board with this role. <laughs> and the piece itself, the aria sat very uncomfortably in my register. I always felt like I was struggling to reach the high notes. It was very awkward. So I've essentially written a 45 minute album about how much I really can't stand this piece of music. Um, <laughs> And it's it's tied up with a recording of me singing it at my piano teacher's 70th birthday concert uh, just before she passed away, which is very um, moving for me. But I've also got a recording of me trying to sing it when my voice was breaking. I ended up having to do it for an exam. Um, and every time I tried to sing, it would just split. So I had this really, <laughs> really horrible recording that I can kind of look back on now and go, the, the qualities of that sound are very interesting. Um, so it's kind of, it's peppered with found footage of me from various stages of life. Um, and kind mm. of celebrating the, the new voice as well. And, uh, looking at the text again from like a trans perspective. So kind of with this, um, the piece that we've been talking about after a dream, um, reframing those lyrics and kind of even more so in this new album coming out. It's called In Chemical Transit, uh, reshaping them so that they are, they are relevant to what I'm trying to talk about. Well, that's brilliant. Well, thanks very much. And we'll um, no doubt talk again when your next music, piece of music comes out. Thanks, Rylan. Thanks very much, Debbie.
So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.